0: So Revelation chapter 4, we want to wrap, this chapter, uh, wrap up this chapter uh, this morning. Uh, it's been very instructive for us uh, as we think particularly about the worship of God, because in this passage, the Apostle John takes us into the very throne room of Almighty God, describing, as we've seen, the throne and the one who sits on that throne and all that is taking place around the throne, and he does it, as we said, so... So that the human heart is set up to understand why the rest of this prophecy exists. Uh, so that God's people will know that when these things are fulfilled, that what will take place is right. It's, it's right and it's just. And that it comes from one who promises to deal with sin's reign, uh, the curse upon creation, and the rebellion of, of mankind. Which, of course, as we said, is tied to the first coming of Christ... But we are still praying to our Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's really the, the culmination. When, when God sets up this, this mediatorial kingdom and his son reigns upon the earth, I would just say that, that, has, not, that has not happened. And, and we're, we're not going to sort of just gradually ease into that. Um, the coming of, of God's kingdom will be abrupt. You could say there's trouble ahead. Um, uh, yes, there, this, this future kingdom will be a time of great blessing and peace and prosperity upon the earth, but according to Scripture, the arrival of that kingdom will be characterized by conflict and judgment. Psalm, Psalm 2 says this, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying... Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give give the nations as your inheritance." and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and you shall shatter them like earthenware. So we're talking about breaking and and shattering things. These are not terms describing gradual Christian conversion and enlightenment that will one day encircle the globe as men sort of continually turn to God. Rather, this psalm describes the radical intervention by God into human history to overthrow the rejection of his king. Christianity will not slowly subsume the social and political institutions of earth resulting in a golden age. Rather, the world system is predicted to eventually reject and intensely persecute the people of God. And it will only be by the direct intervention of God and by His own hand that peace and justice will prevail. So until God's will is being done on earth... As in Heaven, the Kingdom of God has not come in the sense uh, in the sense Jesus would have us pray for, nor in the way that this Psalm or Daniel or the Book of Revelation describe the culmination of these things is still future. there will be a literal reign of Christ upon the earth, and the world will be subjected to cataclysmic events before that happens and as we said in this as John says here in these first verses this first verse of Chapter 4, these things must take place. But the people of God need to be reminded that when the day of the Lord comes, and as a part of that, an outpouring of wrath, that the source of these judgments is a throne, and one who sits upon that throne who is perfect in every way. So this is about preparation. This is about a heart preparation, preparing God's people for what is to come, because what is to come is so tragic and so ...severe and so devastating. So let's read for us since we're going to kind of finish this up. Let me just read again chapter 4. You can follow along. I'm reading from the New American Standard. Verse 1, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven... ...and the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said... ...come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit. and Behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne... And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and upon the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God." And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf. The third creature had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And, for the, four, and the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, to Him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before Him who sits on the throne and will worship Him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for You created all things, and because of Your will they existed and were created." Now just to refresh, refresh our memories, you have, you have in verse 1 John's invitation to heaven, and then beginning in verse 2 you have John's vision of heaven. And we looked at that uh, beginning with the throne, that the heavenly throne itself, and then the one on the throne who is, in this case is God the Father, who John describes in verse 3 as majestic and glorious with images of, we said, precious and valuable things that refract prisms of light that shine out from him, uh, John using concepts that represent brilliance and, and precious things and worth and translucence to convey that God is holy and righteous and eternal. And then John mentions the rainbow around the throne. And we said this, all everything in this chapter really is, is in relation to this, this throne. So this is the rainbow around the throne brilliant light emanating from the throne that resembled a circular rainbow or a halo of emerald colors and hues, perhaps a reminder of God's mercy and grace and faithfulness. And then we have a company of worshipers that are awestruck and filled with wonder. And John once again attempts to describe what he's seeing, these 24 elders around the throne, which, as we said, are likely a unique class of Angelic beings, spirit beings made to reveal things about God for the sake of worship, and quite possibly to actually oversee worship around the throne. And by their worship, they teach us several things about worship. And we, we looked at these things a couple of, a few weeks ago, that pure worship manifests honor and submission to God. that pure worship involves the whole person with full attentiveness and full engagement and that pure worship always celebrates and exalts the truth. In this instance, truth about the sovereign majesty of God, the supreme worthiness of God, and as we saw last time, the fearsome power of God. Verse 5, out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, all of which reminded God's people that He is powerful and mighty and that nothing can stop stop Him or these judgments that are coming. Because God is omnipotent. He is, he is able to both keep His covenant with His people and He is able to deal with every act of wickedness. So this is John's vision of God and His court. A vision of sovereign majesty, a vision of supreme worthiness, and a vision of fearsome power. But it's also a vision... ...of the infinite knowledge of God... ...because at the end of verse 5... ...it says that there were seven lamps of fire... ...burning before the throne... ...which are the seven spirits of God... ...which is which is a, a literary device... ...or a figure of speech... Uh, ...so sometimes we do this... ...we call this a synecdoche... ...where we take a word... ...or we take a phrase... ...that that refers to a part of something... ...and substitute it... ...or make it stand for the whole... or ...or vice versa... ...for example... Uh, The phrase, all hands on deck, uh, which is obviously a a demand for all of the crew to help. So it's just a way, we're not saying that we need all just the hands, right? We're saying we just need the hands there. It's just a way, an expression of saying the hands represent the whole. And so when we we say we need all hands on deck, we're just saying we need everybody, right? We need everybody's help. That's sort of what's going on here. Uh, John mentions the many things, but it's really just one great thing. The seven spirits of God representing the complete work of the Spirit of God himself. John sees that just like he did back in chapter 1. The Holy Spirit who penetrates all of creation, who unfailingly accomplishes the Father's will, who is comprehensive in all of his wisdom. He knows every detail. He knows every nation, every soul, every person, every deed, every intention of man's heart. He has marked those things down. He never forgets them thing his, things his knowledge is absolutely comprehensive, and then it says these it mentions these seven lamps of fire burning before the throne and so we, we said this really this really points to the fact that the Holy Spirit is poised for judgment, right so again, everything that's in this this description of worship, this vision of God in chapter four. And as we'll see, the, the, um, the lamb will come into the picture in, 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 in chapter 5. All of these things are setting us up for the chapters to come. And the, and the main theme of those chapters is judgment. And so even the Holy Spirit in this case is poised for judgment. He is positioned to bring sin to light, to, to expose sin, and to judge sin accordingly which means that when judgment falls, it will be fulfilled completely, effectively, and according to God's infinite knowledge. That is to say, God's knowledge is prepared to carry out every judgment down to the last detail. He knows how to mete out judgment and deal with those who have spurned His truth and come against His people, and He will be perfect in that. And whatever suffering God's children have endured for His name, there will be all reward and all blessing in eternity with Christ. And God's infinite knowledge makes that so. That is what John sees around the throne and before the throne. The infinite knowledge of God which cannot be separated from the very throne that will mete out the judgments. And so we were talking just at the very end of the lesson last week about this. I mean, if... if, if if something, you just think very practically from just uh, your own life or even someone that you know, someone that you are discipling or counseling, just someone that has experienced something where there were no human witnesses, something that was so, so severe, so, so terrible, it's hard to even describe and to put into words. And, 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 and what this, the comfort of this passage is that the Holy Spirit right infinite knowledge god sees all these things and 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 the judgment that god brings upon sin and upon the world will be connected directly to his knowledge of those things that were done sometimes in secret so to know that even if no one else witnessed these things god god saw, god saw god sees that and he he knows those details and when he is ready and his time to bring judgment, the punishment will fit the crime. We don't have to worry about that. We don't have to worry if if there's going to be a day of of reckoning. There's going to be a day of reckoning. And God has all the facts to make sure that that judgment is equitable. Now let's continue on because this is sort of where we stop. We also have the sea of glass before the throne. The sea of glass before the throne, the beginning of verse 6, and before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. Interesting. In chapter uh, chapter 15, verse 2, we're told that those who achieve victory over the beast by not loving their lives to the death are seen standing on this sea of glass at the base of the throne. Uh, there it is said to be mixed, or in some translations say mingled with fire, possibly indicating the brilliance of light radiating from this crystal-like Structure, and again, even that sort of the, the whole that concept, even in that description that concept of of judgment um, and retribution, Moses, the sons, sons of Aaron, and the elders of Israel saw something similar when they met with God on Mount Sinai in exodus twenty four verse nine Says, then Moses went up with Aaron, Nabad, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel, and under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. So we have this as it were a sea of glass. And remember, you're just, you know, this is John trying to put into words. That's why it says, it was like this. It was it had this particular appearance. It's not that these things are just some sort of. Um, sort of a misty, foggy, like I, I'm, I'm not really sure what I'm seeing. No, what, uh, what, John, what John describes for us, I mean, the terms and the concepts, concepts that he uses are very concrete. I mean, it is something that can be described, but he still has to employ these similes, right, and these metaphors and say, well, it's, it's sort of, it's like this, like this is, the, this is the closest thing that I can come to describing these glorious realities, so this this sea of glass refracting light, I was thinking. You, you imagine what that would be would have been like to see the flashes of lightning from verse five and the lamps of fire burning with this crystal like pavement. So it's almost like you have this this crystal like structure, but then you have these these lightning flashes at times, and then you have this these these burning torches, right? And just how all that was sort of colliding and, and coming together, which. Um, by the way, sim- sim- symbolically, I guess if people struggle to sort of what, what's the is there is there any symbolism in this? I, oh, there are some many suggestions about a lot about what these things mean, but um, this particular one I thought was interesting. Uh, one commentator says that it symbi- symbolically insulates God from John and everyone else. That is to say, it is a it is a symbol. And this is Martin Kittle. He calls it of God's separateness. So there's something as if John's seeing, but there's something between he and what is going on around the throne. And, that, and, and the, that fact that God is set apart from all of his creation, a separation that stems from his purity and absolute holiness, which he shares with no one else. And then next we are introduced to the four living creatures in the middle and around the throne. And the first thing we see about these living creatures is their description. The second part there, latter part of verse 6, and in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, the second creature like a calf, and the third creature had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle, or as the ESV says, an eagle in flight. They are living creatures, or you might say living ones, in the center and around the throne, meaning they are, are near it. They are near the throne and they surround it, perhaps in a circular pattern, with one in front, two to the sides, and one in back, possibly still or maybe in motion. We don't really know. In fact, if we, 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 there's a description in Ezekiel of four living beings, and they are sort of cir- circulating around the throne, but we don't have that uh, given to us explicitly in this passage. So there's four of them, four beings that are not human, and yet they are not really animals of the usual kind. They are, they are not human, and neither are they beasts, but they are living beings. And they are similar, but not identical to the four living creatures that Ezekiel saw and that we read about in Ezekiel chapters one uh, chapter 3 and, verse, and, and chapter 10, they are similar in that they, meaning both groups, the, so the, this description of the four living creatures and then Ezekiel's description, those two groups, they both attend the throne of God, they both are winged, and aspects of their character represent a lion, a calf or an ox, a man and an eagle, but there are also significant differences. For example... Ezekiel's creatures had four wings, whereas these have six. Uh, Moreover, Ezekiel's creatures each had all four faces of a man, a lion, an ox, and an eagle. So they had all four on the same being, Uh, whereas these each have one of those characteristics. And no mention is made of Ezekiel's creatures themselves having eyes, although the wheels they attend are full of eyes, but these creatures in Revelation... Themselves are full of eyes. And so they are similar, but similarity doesn't make identity. So they are different in identity to Ezekiel's cherubim. This is, and in, in we're told explicitly that they are cherubim. That's in Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 20. They're not identical to those beings that Ezekiel describes, and yet they are most likely cherubim. We are first introduced to the cherubim as we see their service to God in guarding the way to the tree of life after the expulsion of Adam and Eve from the garden in Genesis 3.24. Uh, interestingly, Satan was created as one of these cherubims serving at God's throne until he fell according to Ezekiel 28.14. Concerning this Donald Barnhouse comments, he says, "...here are the living ones in every way his equals." He's speaking about Satan. "...in every way his equals, yes, infinitely his superiors, since they have access to all of the power of God. These are not with him in his rebellion. They are ready to carry into effect the orders of divine judgment." For instance, in chapter 6... These living creatures call John's attention to the effects of the lamb's loosening of the first four seals, whereupon the four horsemen of the apocalypse ride forth. Or in chapter 15, verse 7, one of the four living creatures gives the final seven bowls of God's wrath to the seven angels who will pour forth the seven plagues. So they attend God's throne, and notice one is like a lion, another like a calf, the description of the third creature really centers on its face being like that of a man, although nothing is said concerning the likeness of the remainder of its, of its body. And then the fourth is like an eagle in flight. Of course, as with a lot of these things, there's, there's much discussion about the symbolism conveyed by these representations. Some say that they symbolize the wild places of earth, the cultivated places, the cities and the towns and the open sky. And so just a way of thinking through various aspects of of creation. Some say they symbolize four great apostles, Peter, James, John, and then the apostle Paul. Interestingly, some claim that they reflect the four uh, main roles of Jesus Christ revealed in the four gospels. So they would say that if you go through the four gospel accounts... um, that uh, and and I, I agree with the emphasis in these gospels, but uh, it's it's doesn't necessarily mean that they have to connect and coincide with this description in Revelation. But they basically take Matthew as representative of, and they're just talking about the way in which the gospel writers emphasize the the person of Christ. So they're just different ways, different aspects of the person and the work of Christ. And so Matthew really emphasizes in his gospel the fact that Jesus is the Messiah King, he's the coming king, and so they would say that represents the lion. Then you have the gospel of Mark, where Mark talks about the fact that Jesus came uh, as a servant, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many, and so that's the calf, that's the ox. And then Luke, you see an emphasis as Jesus as the perfect man, he's represented there as the son of man, and so that's this human Sort of figure and form, this face is as a, as a man in revelation, and then the Gospel of John, where Jesus is described as the Son of God, right, so really emphasizing his deity and then tying that to the eagle, which in in uh, in in the, the thought of that day was represented deities and in godlike figures so they they kind of go with that and this this understanding was has been seen in works throughout church history one such as the book of kells which was a an illustrated work containing the four gospels written around ad 800 and so the cover of that book is is this really sort of ornately illustrated cover and on the cover is a is is a sketch of the four Sort of picture, four pictures that illustrate the four gospels, and those are the four figures that you find in that in that sketch. You find the lion, the ox, a man, and an eagle but still there's there 's still confusion about which gospel goes with each creature, so yeah, that sounds great, and then you start reading the church fathers and going through church history, and what you find out is that really many of people in church history cannot even they cannot even uh, agree on which one goes with which gospel. And so you have the church father, Irenaeus, who believed that the eagle represented the gospel of Mark, but Athanasius thought that Mark was represented by the ox. Augustine identified the lion with Matthew, but Victorinus said it was the man who pictured Matthew. And the combinations just go on and on. And so it, it sounds sounds clear, clean and clear until then you start actually reading through some of these things, and there's all different views. I mean, it's just this, this one and that one, and it's basically, you could you could almost take every combination of those things and find someone in church history that says, that's the one, that's the one. Some even connect the symbolism of the four to the four points of the zodiac in Babylonian mythology, while others suggest they represent certain attributes of God, or just Christian virtues such as courage, patience, sympathy, and aspiration. But maybe the most compelling idea is that they simply represent animate creation, whether it's wild animals, domesticated animals, human beings, or birds. Obviously, obviously the present scene and its emphasis upon God's judicial dealings with creation make that a real possibility. Then notice in verse 8, each one of them, having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. You remember the cherubim that Ezekiel saw had four wings. We hear of that in Ezekiel 1, verses 11 and 12. Whereas these creatures have six wings like the seraphim, which Isaiah saw attending the throne. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 2, we read, Seraphim stood above him, above the Lord, each having six wings, With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. As some have suggested, two covering their face in reverence, as not presuming to lift up their faces to God, two covering their feet in humility, as not worthy to stand in God's holy presence, and two with which to fly in obedient readiness to do instantly what God commands. And they are intelligent creatures near the apex of God's created order. Verse 6 states that they are full of eyes in front and behind. But then verse 8 says, it, it's, it sounds repetitive. Verse 8 says that they are full of eyes around and within. So it's, he, he brings this up in verse 6, but seems compelled in verse 8 to remind us again of the fact that that's lots of eyes. That's a lot of eyes, right? Full of eyes in front and behind. But then he mentions the wings in between these, verse 6 and verse 8, he mentions the wings, and you might think that somehow these three pairs of wings might interfere or impede their vision. I think that is why he adds in verse 8 that they are full of eyes around and within. That is to say, the eyes were round the outside of each wing and up the inside of each when half expanded and and, and of the part of the body in that inward recess being so full of eyes that they are able to move their wings without ever disrupting their vision. Think of it this way. They are like four divine bodyguards. Right? I, mean, that's what I, I think of this, these 24 elders as these, as these, these, these angelic nobles. Right, that, that, that are teaching us about worship that may again be in, in actually overseeing the worship of God around the throne, then I think of these, these four living creatures, these four living beings as four divine bodyguards with incredible power, with incredible insight and knowledge, vigilant and completely aware of what happens pertaining to their assigned task. Definitely not omniscient but as Robert Thomas notes, created with such penetrative intelligence that they are immediately aware of happenings pertaining to their judicial responsibility. So it's not to say, it's not the same as we're seeing the seven spirits of God. The seven spirits of God represent the Holy Spirit who is omniscient and knows all things. In this case, these four creatures have these eyes all around and within and on their body and wings and under their wings, Not because they know all things, but because they are aware of those things which pertain to their specific tasks. So when God commissions them, in fact, we're going to see this uh, in just a couple of weeks, where they are sent out, right? These, these, These creatures are sent out to accomplish the will of Christ. And when they're sent out to do those things, they have complete knowledge about what they are intended to do and they do it in perfect obedience and compliance with their instructions. That is their description. And then notice their doxology. It says, And day and night they do not cease to say, it literally says, They have no rest, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Of course, this is not their only activity, but it does seem to be their practice whenever they are not engaged in serving God in some other way. So, in other words, we're going to see times in Revelation where these living creatures are sent out to do things. So it's not as if when it says that they're doing this night and day, it's, it doesn't mean that they're constantly, every every moment, doing this. In fact, it's analogous to, with Paul's statement uh, to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2.9, and even in 2 Thessalonians, in the, fact, the, the passage or passage we'll be preaching most likely this morning in chapter 3, verse 8, regarding Paul's own labors to support himself by working, and he uses this phrase, by by night and day, right? So Paul was working night and day, which doesn't mean that he worked around the clock at earning money to, to the exclusion of ministry opportunities, right? We know that. We know that Paul's not saying, that's all I did was work, right? No ministry, all work. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that it was his regular practice to work and that he did both night labor and day labor to provide necessary funds. And that's really, I think, what's going on here with these four living beings. Their main, you might even say their regular and consuming practice is to offer tribute to God. And what is it that they declare? That God is holy. This is what they say, holy. Separate. We we tend to think, when we think of the idea of holiness we typically think of moral purity, which there, there is a... Uh, that, that, that is part of what it means to be holy, but, but primarily in the Scriptures when it says God is holy, it's speaking about the fact that God is separate, right? That he is, he is separate from His creation, He is unique, He is one of a kind. Exodus fifteen eleven, the Song of Moses says, "'Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? "'Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders?' So that's really the idea, is that who is like you, you are holy. There's no one like you. And it's it's the only one of God's attributes that is repeated in this fashion. So we have this sort of holy, holy, holy. It's the only time we have an attribute of God that's repeated in that way, and it is the summation of all that He is. So they say this, that God is holy, and not only is His holiness cause for worship, but also His power as the four living creatures, refer to God as the Almighty. The one who holds all things. That's the idea. See, so He's the one who holds all things. The strongest and most powerful being, devoid of any weakness, and able to effortlessly do whatever his holy will purposes to do. Moreover, they praise God for his eternality, extolling him as he who was and who is and who is coming. Literally, the He was and the who is and the coming one. You could translate it. That would be a more, a more wooden translation of that. The He was and the Who and the coming one. This is their pronouncement. This is their doxology. And then notice what this triggers. Verse 9, "...and when the living creatures give glory..." And honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever. Verse ten: The twenty-four elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne, and will worship him who lives forever and ever, and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, "Worthy are you, O Lord our, and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you." Em- em- the emphasis is on that y- you yourself created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. And here we get a gl- glimpse of the 24 elders and their worship of God. And this is a repetitive event. So the, you have the, the four living creatures giving glory to God, and, and, and then you have this, this response of the 24 elders as their action is tied to the doxology given by the living creatures In other words, whenever the creatures shall give glory, the elders shall themselves fall down. That is repetitive, involuntary worship. They worship at His footstool. The one who lives forever and ever. The one living into the ages of the ages, which speaks of God's eternal existence. He is the unique, uncaused cause who has always existed and from which all else was brought forth. And so we have this phrase, Into the Ages of Ages, which is really one of the strongest possible expressions for an unending eternity. And it's significant because we're gonna, when we get to chapter 20, verse 10, we find this same phrase exactly in the context of, of judgment. It says there, Revelation 20, 10, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever same phrase in the greek into the ages of the ages same phrase so that that brings us to this issue of the doctrine of eternal punishment right do we believe in the doctrine of eternal punishment yes we do Why do we do that? Well, in part because of verses like this that teach that the duration of the punishment of Satan and Satan's captains and those on on the earth or of the earth who have followed him will be into the ages of the ages or into eternity. So the very same phrase that's used to describe God's sort of eternal existence in the past and eternal existence into the future is used to describe this... Judgment against Satan and his followers. They will, be, they will be cast into the lake of fire and will be tormented forever and ever. So the four living creatures give glory to God and the 24 elders, these angelic nobles, fall down before God and cast their golden crowns before the throne, recognizing the supreme worthiness of the one on the throne, saying what? You are worthy. You are worthy. And they address this directly to the Lord Himself. They say, you have the right. You have the right. You deserve to receive glory and honor and power. Or, Or you might say, you deserve to receive praise for your power. Why? Because God created all things. He is the creator. All else is creature. God alone is independent. All else is dependent upon Him. And a recognition of this distinction is the foundation of all true worship this is this is the foundation stone for all true worship that we realize that 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 God is, is who he is and and those that he 's made and created are who they are. but there is a, a vast difference between the two this is why this is why Romans one, when it talks about the sinfulness of man. I mean, this is why this is such a serious thing. Because what man has done in his depravity is he has, he has uh, treated creation as if it's God. He's turned his attention and his focus and his worship towards that which has been created rather than towards the creator. All of our worship is to be directed to the originator. And all worship that is directed elsewhere is idolatry. Romans 11.36, for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. And note, God created all things, a past completed event, but they existed or exist by His will, which is an ongoing thing. That is to say their existence is an ongoing process, but the Bible never speaks about creation as an ongoing process. Creation is always spoken of in Scripture as an immediate work of God. So, so, so that just means th- the theory of evolution doesn't work, right? It's, it's not consistent with the way that the Scriptures discuss this issue of creation. Now, what is the significance of creation? Why this ongoing refrain about God being the one and only Creator? It could very well be because the judgments which are about to take place have for their great object the removal of the curse and the removal of all unholiness from the earth or the ending of creation's groaning and travail. In fact, we ended with this passage last time, Romans 8, verse 19. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who, who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. That is what these words of praise are about. God's glory manifested in creation and the acknowledgement that God has the right both to redeem and to judge His creation. That is what their words anticipate. Paradise lost becoming paradise regained as God from His throne judges Satan, demons, and sinners and takes back His creation as He prepares to bring about that glorious day. So this is the heavenly throne room of God. It's it's breathtaking. It's awesome. All that is going on around and from and before and out of and in the middle of the throne and of utmost importance, the one on the throne. The one who is majestic and worthy of praise and omnipotent and infinite in his knowledge, that is what John sees in this vision, the throne of Almighty God. And God is, he's readied, right? He's readied. He is readied, and this throne room is readied for the entrance of a great king. A king so great that when he appears in chapter 5, he will affect even the spirit beings near the throne. A king so great that only heaven can reveal his greatness. And that's what we'll consider next time, is that, that king, that king that is, that is worthy to open uh, and break the, the seals of the scroll. So we'll come back to that. We'll jump into next time into uh, Revelation chapter 5. And again, folks, we we will, as we get into, when we get beyond chapter 5, we will pick up the pace. I assure you we're not going to spend a week for every one or two verses. Uh, we, we've just, in a way, slowed down and spent some time in this chapter, and we'll do the same in chapter 5 because this, this really, again, is, is so important for us to understand as we get into those other chapters about that coming judgment all of it flows from the throne and all of it comes from a God who is holy and majestic and glorious and has every right to judge his his people and those whom he has created so we'll come back to that